during uh, the message this morning, I will be illustrating um, some of my points with pictures and experiences I had in my recent trip to Africa. Hopefully you don't get tired of hearing uh, of them. Um, as Sheila shared in the announcements, I will be sharing briefly uh, at the prayer breakfast on June 11th uh, about some about uh, what I learned there in Zambia and Zimbabwe. Um, and in addition, I'm also working on gathering pictures and videos um, to share some evening. That's not scheduled yet, and when it is scheduled, um, I'll be sure to let the church know. Um, let's, let's pray together as we begin. Thank you so much, God, for giving us your word, for not leaving us alone here to wander around and try to figure out what your truth is, but for giving us um, the scriptures. We thank you that we get to open them together this morning and hear something from you. Lord, we pray that you would um, uh, anoint the words that are shared, that you would make up for any lack in them, that you would fill them with your spirit that you breathe life into us here as we, as we hear, as we listen, as our hearts receive. And um, Lord, help us to be uh, obeyers of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, having friends or family in a certain region seems to sensitize us to what's going on in that region. I'm from the Boston area, for instance. My family still lives there, so when I hear Boston mentioned, whether it's in conversation or on television, my ears perk up and I pay greater attention. I'm sure that you've experienced the same thing. I know Pastor Hank uh, does when Liberia is mentioned, and Pastor Patty when Canada is mentioned, and Sheila when Pittsburgh is mentioned, and Pastor Woody when Virginia is mentioned, Carmen when Puerto Rico is mentioned, and on and on it goes. When people whom you love live in a certain place, it becomes natural to care more about that place than you otherwise would. So for me, becoming friends with women in Zimbabwe last year during Mennonite World Conference and the couple weeks that followed has in similar ways sensitized me to what happens in that region of the world, which otherwise is far removed from me and from my attention. So in December, when I received texts and emails, December and January, asking for prayer because the rainy season rains had not yet come to Zimbabwe and to Zambia, <clears throat> I thought more about water than I ever have before. The need for it, what the lack of it could mean for people, for crops, for animals. Throughout several months of praying for rain for Sub-Saharan Africa, and God did bring the rains, I also found myself more conscious, more thoughtful, about my own use of water or waste of water resources, and more mindful of the water cycle that God designed for our world. In basic terms, God made the seas and the water bodies throughout our world, including the water that's under the ground that provides moisture and nutrients for plant life. Here's a picture from Botswana of one of the bodies of water, that's the Chobe River. With the heat of the sun, some of the moisture in the bodies of water evaporates and some of the moisture in plants is transpired and through evaporation, the water turns to steam or vapor, which then rises and returns to the atmosphere. Water vapor in the air gets cold and turns back from vapor to liquid, 
forming clouds, condensation. When so much water has condensed that the air can't hold it any longer, the clouds get heavy and water falls back to the earth in some form of precipitation, rain, hail, sleet, or snow. And God has made our world to repeat that cycle over and over and over again. He provided the water, the water evaporates, then it condenses, then it precipitates, refilling the water supply on the earth for the cycle to begin again. There's a cycle for farming as well. I got to visit three farms while I was in Zimbabwe, two owned and managed by two of the families I stayed with, and the third owned and run by Jake and Nancy Shank, who are global workers with Brethren of Christ World Missions. There's a photo from one of the farms. On these farms, they grow plants like maize, and that is not maize, which is used to feed people and to feed animals. The animals are fed what is grown on the farm, then their manure, their waste matter, is used to fertilize the soil that grows the crops that feed the animals, and on and on the cycle goes. There's one more cycle of life that I saw up close and personal in Africa while on our safari at Chobe National Park in Botswana. In the morning of the safari, just to give you a little background, we rode on a boat along the Chobe River and got glimpses of the wildlife that either lives in or drinks from that water source. Then in the afternoon, we rode in an open-air jeep that traveled throughout the park, watching for animals to see and to photograph. We had several rules for this time. One, be quiet. Two, don't stand. And three, don't reach your limbs outside of the jeep, as if I was going to do that. Um, I was sitting on the end of the front row of seats, right at the edge of the jeep. And our driver, Charles, had spotted a herd of elephants among some brush, and they were eating. It was a beautiful sight. The African bush elephant is the largest and heaviest land animal living today. Male elephants are an average of 10 and a half feet tall at the shoulder, and they weigh about 13,000 pounds, six tons. And females are an average eight and a half feet tall at the shoulder, and they weigh half as much, three, town, three tons, 6,600 pounds. Elephants eat leaves from trees and shrubs, and they consume 500 pounds of vegetable matter daily, washed down with 50 gallons of water per day. So after snapping a few photos of these elephants eating, I thought I'd record a little video of their eating on my phone. Much to my surprise, as soon as I began recording, a female elephant and her calf started to come toward me, fairly close to me, as you'll see. If you've ever driven with me as a passenger in your car, you may know that I gasp when I'm startled, which tends to happen easily. I'm a terrible passenger. Sorry if I've ever ridden with you. So in a moment, we'll see when we see the video, you'll likely hear me gasp. You really can't miss it. <laughs> For which I was scolded by the driver when we got um, ready to leave the area. I broke the be quiet so that you don't alarm the animals rule. But in addition to the gasp, please be sure to notice the fact that the young elephant in the video is nursing. Yet another cycle of life. The mother eats and eats and drinks and from that produces milk, which feeds the calf, 
with the eating and feeding cycle continuing for a full five years of the calf's life. Though they also start eating vegetation at about six months. Keith, can you play the video? <laughs> Cool, huh? Uh, that was not zoomed in. That was as close in real life as those elephants were to me. Oh, just amazing. Just as cycles take place in the physical realm, whether it be the rainwater cycle or the farming, feeding, and fertilizing cycle, or the eating and nursing cycle for a mother and child, a cycle also takes place in our spiritual lives. I invite you to turn uh, with me to our scripture this morning, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This section of scripture begins with Paul's testimony, beginning at verse 10, which we didn't read the whole thing, but beginning at verse 10, which Paul the mentor reminds Timothy, his apprentice, of his teaching, his way of life, his purpose, his faith, his patience, his love, his endurance, the persecutions and sufferings he endured, as well as the Lord's rescuing him from all of them. Then he instructs Timothy that everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted, and he challenges him to continue in what he has learned. We know from Acts 16.1 that Timothy's mother was Jewish and his father was a Greek. The influencers in Timothy's life were his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. It was important to the Jews that their children be taught and trained in the law from their earliest years. William Barclay said the Jews claimed that their children learned the law even from their swaddling clothes and that they drank it in with their mother's milk. So from his earliest childhood, from infancy, as Paul said, Timothy had known the word of God. In verse 15, Paul records that the holy scriptures which Timothy were taught were the Old Testament. The New Testament didn't exist at this time yet. And Paul says that they're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. If the Old Testament can lead us to saving faith in Jesus, how much more true would Paul's claim be about the New Testament with the Gospels, which tell us about his birth and life and death and resurrection, as well as his teachings, and with the record and letters of, the, of his earliest followers? The scriptures are able to lead you to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul then emphasizes that all scripture, every scripture, every part of scripture is first of all God-breathed and secondly is useful. The scriptures being God-breathed 
remind us of the words in Genesis 2-7, when God created man. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Just as God breathed life into Adam, he breathes life into the scriptures. So the writer of Hebrews can say, for the word of God is living and active. A.W. Tozer, in my favorite book, Pursuit of God, writes, I think a new world will arise out of the religious mists when we approach our Bible with the idea that it is not only a book which was once spoken, but a book which is now speaking. The prophets habitually said, thus saith the Lord, or thus says the Lord. They meant their hearers to understand that God's speaking is in the continuous present. We may use the past tense to properly indicate that at a certain time, a certain word of God was spoken, but a word of God once spoken continues to be spoken, as a child once born continues to be alive, or as a world once created continues to exist. If you would follow on to know the Lord, he says, come at once to the open Bible, expecting it to speak to you. Do not come with the notion that it is a thing which you may push around at your convenience. It is more than a thing. It is a voice, a word, the very word of the living God. William Willimon, in his book, Incarnation, The Surprising Overlap of Heaven and Earth, writes this. In words that lie upon a page of scripture, or words spoken by a thoroughly human preacher, sometimes by the work of God, it becomes the word made flesh. The word is again fulfilled in your hearing. The word dwells in us richly. And in spite of all of our defenses against speech by a living God, we hear. Thus many of us believe in the truth of incarnation, not because it is church doctrine, but because it is a frequent occurrence in our own lives. God breathes life into his word and into our hearts through it. Paul writes that scripture is not just God-breathed, but it is useful, giving us four distinct yet related ways that God uses it in our lives. First, for teaching. Look around for a minute. Who of us knows all we can know of God and his ways? Who of us knows all we can know of Jesus and his teachings? The scriptures are useful for teaching. Secondly, he says they're useful for reproof, which might also be called conviction or rebuke. Though we might not like it at the moment, being stopped in our tracks is definitely a good thing. John Wesley described it as the conviction of them that are in error or sin. One author described the Christian life like learning to drive in another land. The writer said he must unlearn his old habit and learn a new one, and more serious than all, he must learn in heavy traffic. Having just experienced riding in a car in a country where they drive on the left side of the road with the driver sitting on the right side of the car, this analogy makes perfect sense to me. And by the way, I drove for a couple minutes in Zimbabwe. Woohoo! 
if you're about to turn into the lane of opposing traffic because that's what you're used to doing, you want someone to reprove you, to yell at you, to stop. That's what the scriptures do for us. Amy Carmichael wrote, The marvel of our Bible never shows more marvelous than at such times when you see it in deed and in truth, the sword of the Spirit, and it cuts. Thirdly, Paul says that the scriptures are useful for correction. When we've been reproved, the scriptures are also able to set us right, to correct our steps. A way to understand this would be to think about learning a new language. I'm interested in learning Indibaili, for instance. And I have a picture of it for you to see what it looks like written. <clears throat> it's a hard language. Though I don't imagine I'll be able to master it, I'd like to be able to at least speak a little and understand at least a little of what my friends in Zimbabwe say to one another. The only way to learn a language is to attempt to speak it, and even though it's awkward to do so, and then to be corrected, to be shown the right way to say something. In like manner, the Lord uses his word to correct, to help us learn how to turn from sin, from evil, from selfishness, from rebellion, and toward God in order to live in his way. Psalm 119, verse 59 says, I have considered my ways and have turned my steps to your statutes. This is how the scriptures correct us, helping us to know the right way to turn and putting us on the right path. And then fourthly, Paul says that the scriptures are useful for training in righteousness. Righteousness is a word of relationship, right relationship with God and with others. It's a word that's closely aligned with justice. God's desire is to train us to live rightly with him and with others. And the word training implies work, effort, discipline, not an instantaneous righteousness. According to verse 17 in 2 Timothy 3, the purpose of all this, all this teaching, all this reproving, all this correcting, all this training is to equip us thoroughly for every good work. Good works should characterize our lives. <clears throat> In the message, Eugene Peterson says it this way, every part of scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. Through the word, we are put together and shaped up for the tasks God has for us. God has good works, tasks for us to do. A.W. Tozer said, No one can long worship God in spirit and in truth before the obligation to holy service becomes too strong to resist. Fellowship with God leads straight to obedience and good works. Amy Carmichael, who served for much of her adult life in India, I think it was for 57 years without leaving that country, wrote this profound thought in one of her books. She said, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. When we love God, we want to give to him, to give to his people, to serve, to meet needs, 
to give the gospel to those who are lost in sin. Good works are the outpouring of our love, of our thanks, of our desire to be part of building the kingdom. And good works are the purpose God has for each and every believer. When I was at the women's conference at Matopo Mission in Zimbabwe, the preaching was all in Indibeli. They had a translator, but she translated into Shona, another of the regional languages. <clears throat> so I don't know much of what was said other than the brief summaries that my friends would share as they were able to do without distracting others. So I had the chance to sit for long periods of time reading the scriptures they were referring to and reflecting on them myself. The theme for the weekend was based on Nehemiah 2, 17 to 18, which is Nehemiah's plea to the people of Israel to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, which was lying in ruins. Nehemiah said, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. And then in verse 18, he wrote, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. And chapter 4, verse 6 tells us the people worked with all their heart. The same attitude, the same kind of response when there's a need and a call to work, this wholehearted commitment should characterize all of us today. A sharp criticism of the North American church is the statistic that says that in most churches, 20% of the people do 80% of the work, which means that the other 80% of the people are doing the other 20% of the work. I suspect that our church has a better division of labor among the workers than that, but we also have room to grow. If you're not serving in any way, Consider today what good work God has equipped you to do and what contribution yours could be. Friends, let's get to work. Let's join together and do God's work of building his kingdom and let's do the work like these Israelites with all our heart. That's the point of all our teaching, reproving, correcting, and training, right? Paul describes us in 1 Corinthians 3.9 and in 2 Corinthians 6.1 as God's fellow workers. And he described himself in Romans 1.1 as a servant of Christ Jesus. I was humbled in Zambia and Zimbabwe to observe women who work in the home service field. They rise early in the morning and begin their work at 6 a.m. They clean and they cook do laundry, iron clothes, scrub floors, clean bathrooms, make beds, wash dishes, serve meals, help with children, answer callers at the gate, etc., etc. And not just here and there, but every day they do these things. And in many homes, they serve until the family is in bed for the night. So their day is from 6 a.m. until 10 p.m. I never saw any idleness in them. And many of them do other work in addition to supplement their income. One of the questions I have been pondering as I think about these workers is whether I'm willing to work that hard for the Lord if I'm his servant. Amy Carmichael wrote, I would rather burn out than rust out. Is that my preference? Is it yours? 
At the beginning of the message, I talked about cycles in our world that God has designed. The water cycle, the planting, harvesting, consuming, fertilizing cycle of farming, and the eating and nursing cycle of motherhood. In like manner, God has designed a spiritual cycle. We are to spend time in his word, receiving our nourishment there, our teaching, our reproof, correction, and training. And then we are to work out what we partake of through obedience and good works. And as we obey and as we work for the Lord, we need more nourishment to sustain us and to help us to continue to grow, which should push us back to his word, which then equips us to serve. And on and on and on the cycle goes. Are you experiencing this cycle in your spiritual life? Ignoring either part of this cycle is unhealthy. If we eat and eat and eat from God's word and don't do any of it, we might be like the character Violet Beauregard in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Here's a photo to remind you of what she looked like. Huh. We won't be blue. But if we work and work for the Lord and don't spend time in his word, being so engrossed in the work of the Lord that we neglect the Lord of the work, we'll become spiritually starved and not fit for any good work. God's design for the church for believers is that we're equipped by his word with a regular diet of reading and studying it. And then we put that equipping into action by our good works our service to the Lord and others. May our love for the word of God and our commitment to be in the word be like that of the psalmist in 119, verses 15 and 16. He says, I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. It's a challenging last line. I will not neglect your word. And may our hands and our feet and our mouths live out in good works the truth of the scripture which we take into our minds and hearts. A.W. Tozer, in writing about faith and obedience in his book, Path to Power, said, to any inquirer, I would say, just do the next thing you know you should do to carry out the will of the Lord. If there is sin in your life, quit it instantly. Put away lying, gossiping, dishonesty, or whatever your sin may be. Forsake worldly pleasures, extravagance in spending, vanity in dress, in your car, in your home. Get right with any person you may have wronged. Forgive everyone who may have wronged you. Begin to use your money to help the poor and advance the cause of Christ. Take up the cross and live sacrificially. Pray. Attend the Lord's services. Witness for Christ, not only when it is convenient, but when you know you should. Then Tozer goes on. Look to no cost and fear no consequences. Study the Bible to learn the will of God and then do his will as you understand it. Start now by doing the next thing and then go on from there. Let's pray. Thank you for the riches of these scriptures that you've given us. God, thank you for giving them in our language, readily available for us to read and study and meditate on. 
be challenged by. We pray, God, that you would help us to order our lives in such a way that we would be growing in our discipline of doing just those very things. Help us to carve away the time that's needed to feed on your word. God, to be nourished by you. And then, God, we ask you to give us the courage to put your words into action, to do your good works, to be doers of your word, even when it costs us something. God, we ask you to help us in that. Help us to be committed to this cycle of eating and doing and eating and doing and eating and doing so that we'll grow and your kingdom will grow. God, that's what we want so much. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Going to have uh, our closing song.